So let's read John 21, verses 1 to 19, and then study it together. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called a twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James, and John, the writer of the gospel, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish that you have just caught.' So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Well, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this poignant and powerful and challenging portion of Scripture. We pray that we would listen well and hear what you are saying to us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, the title I've given to the sermon, you'll see that on the notes on the back of the service sheet, is Commission. Uh, Ian Morrison, one of our ministry associates, 
convinced me in our sermon prep meeting this week that it really makes sense of a chapter people often struggle with, as they do with this chapter, as to what its purpose is at the end of John's Gospel. It is the equivalent uh, in John of the Great Commission in Matthew, and I think that's exactly right. Let me read you Jesus' words in Matthew. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And it's the same thing we get at the end of John's Gospel. Now, there are differences in John. The focus is on Peter, an individual, his commissioning. And we are to hear the Lord's words to Peter as the Lord's words to us. But these two commissionings, Matthew and John, complement each other so well. The Lord Jesus' commission in Matthew is, and we know it in this way, a great commission. It is, if you like, a commission on a grand, noble scale with exalted rhetoric. The kind of words that you would conclude a service with, a doxology, the kind of words you would write in the Bible of a missionary as they are commissioned to go overseas, or the kind of words a mission organization would take as its vision statement, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, the great commission. And yet, just as powerful, although different, is the personal commission at the end of John's Gospel. A personal commissioning as part of the great commissioning. What about writing these words into the Bible that we give Sam and Ian, when God willing, they are commissioned into leadership and training in the new church? It's good, I think, for us to talk about new church as opposed to church plant. Church plant makes it sound so trendy. It's just another church. Yeah. Would it be good to write these words into their Bibles from John 21? Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Then feed my sheep. Now, the first point you'll see on the sheet is not our commission, but Jesus mission. And that's really important. Our commission comes second to Jesus' mission. Or perhaps better put, our commission is into Jesus' mission. I think of the video you saw from Mark and Camilla. It's a powerful and a moving video. They are being, or were commissioned by us and their other sending churches into a mission that was already happening. What's going on in East Asia, and in China in particular, is Jesus' mission, Jesus' work. Jesus commissions us into his mission. That's what makes Mark and Camilla, when you listen to them, so steady. It's Jesus' mission they are in. It's what makes Jason and Rebecca and their three little children, so steady, and they relatively are so steady about moving from Australia into East Asia in a month for the rest of their lives. Because they are moving into 
Jesus' mission. And what Jesus commissions them and us to do, what Jesus commissions us to do as a church when we start a new church, I knew they said plant, is to step out into an unstoppable mission that is spreading like a forest fire to the ends of the earth that cannot be contained, that cannot be stopped. Jesus commissions us into his mission. A number of people from the church family were away at Word Live this past week. Many of you, I think, have been over the years. They came back, as they always do, very positive and changed by it. It does make a very singular difference in the lives of the people who go, perhaps especially the children and the teenagers. With our, my own family, you watch them. Uh, how tough it is as a Christian in school, and yet they go away to these events. They're with uh, 1,200 other youngsters, and the, the benefit, the learning, the help, the instruction, the, the, the vision they get is a very powerful thing. When I meet uh, people who were there, I ask them what they learned, which makes them squirm a little bit. And I asked uh, one of our elders who was there on Friday night, what was the big message you learned from Nehemiah? And the Bible readings were on Nehemiah. And his answer was, was this. He said, planning and strategy like church plant, church, new church. <laughs> strategy is important, but unless Jesus is in it, it'll fail. Now, I really don't think that we are meeting together on Thursday night, given all the work and prayer that's gone into this, to discern whether Jesus is in it. I think what we're doing on Thursday night is meeting together to discern whether we are in what Jesus is in. I think that's right. Now, this doesn't mean to say that you just do anything out there. It needs to be carefully thought through. Why do we think Jesus is in it? Because in the southwest of the city, where there are 50,000 people, there are hardly any churches. He has to have a heart for mission. So Jesus commissions us into his mission. Some of the details, you'll see the words there on the sheet, resurrection. This is eyewitness testimony. It is a resurrection appearance of Jesus. After this, after other resurrection appearances, verse 1, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. It's eyewitness testimony. The disciples are fishing through the night. Why have they gone fishing? Is Peter having a crisis moment in his faith? Are we meant to read something into this? No. That would be my view. I think they're fishing because, well, they're fishermen, and you've got to find something to do. Uh, and Peter says, well, I don't know about you, but I'm going fishing. Anyone coming? So they go fishing. Why the night? Because I guess, well, they know what they're doing. They're fishermen. Uh, and they can't catch anything. And you can imagine Peter saying, whose idea was it to go fishing? This is useless. Yours, Peter. And then it's early in the morning, the first light of dawn, they see someone on the shore. They must have been close, well, they were 100 yards or so. They couldn't see who it was, kind of an Edinburgh mist on the shore, but they hear him, and he says to them, children or friends maybe, 
do you not have any fish? And you can imagine in the boat at that point what they would have said. Hmm. How does he know? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, surely one of them at that point would have twigged. That's happened before. And they do what he says. And the fish literally charge into the net. So many they couldn't haul it in. It was too heavy. It's a miracle. We're meant to see it as that. It is the power of God. Jesus knows where the fish are and he brings them into the net. He knows where the fish are and he brings them into the net. Why am I repeating that? It's so important. I let the, the, the analogy runs from fish to people. He knows where the fish are and he will bring them into the net. He knows where the fish are in Collington, I guess. And he will bring them into the net. Or where Andy is in Charleston. Or where Ali Sewell, as some of you know, in Haddington. Or us in Morningside. He knows who they are. And he will bring them into his net. He will call them to be his disciples. It is his mission. It is the mission of the resurrected Jesus. And because it is the mission of the resurrected Jesus, it is imbued with the power of God. You know, watch that video with, 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 with Mark. And I mean, these are proper obstacles they're facing. Like... You can't have any books. Or you can't meet there. But did he look? Or do any of us really think that Jesus will not overcome these obstacles? Of course he will. The power of Jesus in his mission. And then John gets it. He makes the connection. It is the Lord and Peter, unable to contain himself, jumps in. Now, if you ever wanted proof positive that this is eyewitness testimony, I mean, John, the way he writes his gospel, it's theologically dense and rich and powerful. Details like this, just smack of eyewitness testimony. Peter jumps in in order to get to Jesus. It's what Peter would do. Earlier on, he, he nudged John out of the way and pushed himself into the tomb first. They come ashore and they drag the net up. There are 153 fish. Now, this is the key to the whole chapter. What do you make of the 153 fish? Not 152, not 154. I'm quoting from a Bible commentary. But 100, what do you make of that? Absolutely nothing. So any fisherman here, what do you do when you catch a fish? You weigh it, you measure it, you exaggerate, you photograph it. And you tell people forevermore how many fish you've caught. There were 153 of them. There were a lot of them. It's a bumper catch. That's what it means. There's nothing, there's nothing behind it, I think. It's just eyewitness testimony. Then Jesus takes some of the fish and he cooks some of them on a fire. He prepares and feeds, notice a charcoal fire. That might ring a bell. What is the point Jesus is making in feeding them? He feeds them bread and fish because they're hungry and he gives them breakfast. He mustn't rob it of that reality. But it's symbolic in John of him feeding them truth, feeding them the truth of the gospel. Earlier in the gospel, he said, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never uh, thirst. And so they are experiencing. They are eyewitnesses, not so much here of the resurrected Jesus, or not only that, they're eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus and the power of the resurrected Jesus and the provision that the resurrected Jesus will make for them. He provides all that they need spiritually, and He will provide all that we need spiritually. Now, I wonder if we can be even more practical. I wonder if it's unspiritual to be practical. We had a a fellow visiting the church who was staying with us, and when I was speaking in practical terms about buildings and money and stuff, He said, that was extraordinarily direct. Maybe so. Let me be practical. Will Jesus provide a building to start a church in Collington? Yes. We are sitting in one that he provided. Will he provide a home for Sam and Jen and Toby to live in? Yes. He provided one for us to live in and for future ministers of Chalmers. Uh, We had uh, uh, a plumber in the house this week fixing the heating, and he was chatting to me in the study, and he said, you know, this is the perfect house for a minister. Yeah, it is. Should we be surprised? You know, in... East Asia, they were about to kind of close down that school, but they haven't. There's a new building. Will Jesus provide the income for the plant? Notice I, you know, you're going to think, well, Jesus isn't going to provide it, we are. But remember, everything we have is of Him, every single thing. It's not the sense that He owns it and He's miserly and we get to keep a bit of it, it's just that. All that we are is His. It's the kind of, we give it in to Him. We give to Him everything. Will uh, He provide for Chalmers through the process? Will it be a long, slow recovery for Chalmers for 20 years because all the best people leave? I hope not. Will we be able to develop Chalmers in terms of future ministry? Yes, if Jesus is in it, He will provide everything. Practically, how will we do it if we all give of our time, of our work, our gifts, or our money? The elders' decision to go ahead with all of this is dependent on adequate resources being given. Of course, that's sensible. You can't start if they're not there. And let me just encourage you that a lot of careful thought has gone into that. There are spreadsheets, the width of this room, uh, with all the numbers on them. We're not daft. All that work is done. And it something like, Raising our income as a church, that's our normal giving, by 50%. I mean, that, does that sound a lot? Well, it is quite a lot. Um, why is it not figuring in our thinking, though? Why is it not going to figure on Thursday night? Because it's not an issue. Why? Because if we all give sacrificially, now what does that mean? Well, it means something like 10, 15, 20% of our income, something like that, uh, to the work of the gospel. Uh, not all to chammers. We all give in lots of ways, but a 
good chunk of our income so that we notice to the work of the gospel in the world. A lot of it here, because this is the church we're in, it, it isn't an issue because it, it gives us exactly the money that we need. It's a bit like the Atkinsons needing to get back to China. I got a wonderful email this week saying that all the support has come now for the next five years, whatever. All the pledges have come in after somebody got a legacy, I guess, of £100,000, said, I don't need that, they can have it. And then the whole thing, and they're back now, and they're going to be leading this and that and the other. So it's not a big deal, really. Now, you may think that's very direct and radical, and I keep telling the elders that I'm 100% confident uh, it'll come because I'm 100% confident that every one of us will give 10, 15, whatever percent of what we earn, and therefore it's simple. Now, that's just normal uh, biblical uh, stuff. Um, now, let's shift from uh, Jesus' mission into our commission now. Commission's a good word. Um, there's a church planting movement in London called Commission. It just dawned on me why it's called Commission now. <laughs> this is a great word, isn't it? It's a co-mission. It's not quite a co-mission. It's under his mission. Yeah, Co-mission. Co-mission. Join up with Jesus in starting a new church. Now, let me just reiterate that the majority of us will not go on the church, new church thing. I'm not going to go I don't think. And our practical circumstances will help us decide. I mean, I think that's right. So, for example, if I was a, a parent and I had little children and they were just settling into this church and they were new, I would say, well, you should stay. Or... I mean, there are lots of reasons that think, well, it's not right for me. But let me, let me slightly provocatively suggest to us, if there are no real practical reasons why not, let the Lord Jesus ask you, why not? Don't, don't listen to your own heart saying, I don't want or I don't like or I like this minister more than that one. Listen to Jesus. What will happen, I suspect, we've earmarked 40 adults and 20 kids, I think what we'll get is exactly 40 adults and exactly 20 children with the right elders, the right leaders, everything will just happen. It wouldn't surprise me if we make a big step towards that by Thursday night. That'll happen. But it'll not quite be who we think. I did say probably not me. There was a church in London that I was uh, very involved with where, uh, don't worry, Sam, it's definitely going to only happen once this side of eternity. Just on the wire before the church uh, 
the new church started, the, the person who was leading it and the minister of the sending church swapped places. <laughs> that can only ever happen once. It's not going to happen. Now, listen to Jesus then. Let your preferences, leave them at the door. Let your preferences go. It's really important we do that. Um, I, I mean, I don't want to use the... The danger of me preaching in this way is you can see how easy it would be for, you know, to manipulate, to be emotional. I don't know the answer, you see. I'm trying to just feel our way with this passage as to what it will be for us. But think of the Atkinsons and the Batlocks. They didn't really ever, when I was, I spent a lot of time with them, people like Mary and Clive and others, a lot of time with them discerning the rightness of them. Going, they never, never really actually questioned whether I want to go to the other side of the world never really questioned that. They just, it just, ha- it's right for them. Just the step, the logic went in place. Now, um, there are six words here about being commissioned. Uh, really seven, because number one's a two-parter. Conversion. Don't, don't go overseas. Don't go into ministry in this country. Don't start a life-explored course in your office. Don't read the Bible one-on-one with someone. Don't be part of the leadership of a new church if you're not converted. That's absolutely true. Are you converted? What is conversion? It is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Are you converted. Let me uh, read with you some of the background from earlier in John's gospel. Turn back to John chapter 13, verse 36, which is on page uh, 900. Simon Peter said to him, to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me at least now, but you will afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. Uh, In Matthew's equivalent, uh, Peter had added something. He said, even if all of them, the other disciples, fall away on account of you, I never will. I will die with you, Jesus. Jesus said, if the, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. So John, next, chapter 18, verse 15, page 904. 18, verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court. This is Jesus' trial. Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the disciples and officers had made a charcoal fire. It was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Look on at verse 25. Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? That's a strange ESV translation. 
you know, I'm trying to unpick it. He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden? And Peter denied it, and again, the cock crowed. And Luke, in his gospel, adds this. Immediately, uh, while he was speaking, the cock crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered what the Lord had said to him, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, that's all the background. That's what Peter has been living with. That's what's in Peter's heart and mind as he jumps out of the boat to get to the Lord Jesus. Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire. Why, Peter must have been thinking, why is there a fire? Does the Lord Jesus remember? When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Remember Peter's bold statement, even if all of them fall away, I never will. Jesus says, do you love me more than they do? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him the third time, and Peter must have known what was happening, and the others too, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him, on the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, what is going on? Well, it's obvious. Uh, there's the charcoal fire. Peter had warmed himself before a charcoal fire the night he betrayed Jesus, and the Lord Jesus had turned and looked straight at him. And now there is another charcoal fire, and the Lord Jesus has turned and looked straight at him again. Jesus singles Peter out as Peter had singled himself out. Even if all fall away, I will not. Do you love me more than them? Three times Peter was asked if he knew Jesus. Three times he said no. Three times now Jesus asks Peter if he loves him. Three times he said yes. It was at Peter's third denial that the Lord turned and looked at him. The Lord Jesus' heart grieved. The third question from the Lord Jesus grieved Peter's heart. It could not be clearer what is happening. Repentance and forgiveness for conversion. Now, repentance, that process had begun for Peter at the moment he had denied Jesus when the Lord looked at him. And he went out into the night and wept bitterly. Peter knew he was a sinner. He knew Jesus had to die for him. He knew he needed to be forgiven. Now, this is really important. So listen well. There is an urgency that comes when someone truly repents of sin. You can't be converted unless there is a contrition and a repentance and a consciousness of sin. You cannot be converted unless you're aware of what it is you need to be forgiven. There's an urgency it comes to repentance and the urgency 
wants to get to Jesus to be forgiven. So Peter's physical action in urgently wanting to get to Jesus by jumping out of the boat is how his heart is, an urgency to be forgiven, an urgency when he has become aware of his sin that Jesus will wipe that slate clean for him. That's what happens here as he jumps into the water. There is nothing casual about repentance. Christian conversion is not a lifestyle decision. It is knowing and feeling repentance. There is nothing casual about repentance and there is nothing vague about forgiveness. Forgiveness is full and complete. Forgiveness completely and perfectly covers our sin. Peter's threefold denial wiped out by the threefold declaration of love. And how is it wiped out? How is Peter's knowledge and feeling of repentance and his knowledge and feeling of forgiveness, how are they held together? What comes in between? The cross. Now that's conversion. Is repentance something you know in your head? And is repentance something you, you feel even now? And is forgiveness something you know in your head? Is, some, is it something you know vaguely or precisely in the sense that every single iota of sin has been forgiven? And if you feel these two things, you will feel what Peter felt that day, a mixture of sorrow and joy. Your head will go down because you don't want to look Jesus in the eye and your head will come up because you do. Sorrow and joy. You're converted. And so you're ready to be commissioned. What comes next? Go and start a new church. No. Do you love me comes next. Devotion. You see, conversion, then devotion. Repentance, forgiveness, then devotion. Do you love me? You see, you don't... Do you love me? The answer to that question is yes, that's not conversion. It's often spoken of as conversion. I love Jesus. I love Jesus but I needed to repent of my sins to be converted and therefore I love Jesus. You see, what's a Christian? Someone who loves Jesus? Yes. But what did Jesus say? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And what's the greatest commandment to the believer? The commandments always are for those who are justified by grace. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So are you converted? Yes. Now do you love him? 
and see the difference. And if it's that way around, then you really, really do love him. You will give your life for him. You will give your all for him. And now you understand the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You cannot love the Lord Jesus with that all-encompassing love unless you know and feel repentance and know and feel forgiveness. You cannot do that unless you know and feel the words of a hymn like this. It's a golden oldie. Uh, Still number one on my funeral list. Some of you will get to hear it. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Now, you sing that with a mix of sorrow and joy. You sing that looking away from the eyes of the Lord Jesus and then looking into them. Are you converted? Do you love him? And then serve him. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Um, I reminded Sam in service one, and I'll remind you again, Sam, they're not your sheep. They're not my sheep. This church was built in 1839. There have been lots of under-shepherds, and there will be many more after me. The new church will have Sam as its first under-shepherd, but they're Jesus' sheep. And if Sam goes and Ian goes, the church will not go. Mark and Camilla, Jason and Rebecca, all of these people will do their time. But the work of the gospel in China will not stop because it's Jesus' mission always in the end. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, uh, feed my uh, sheep. Uh, what does it mean? It means feed them the truth. If you're in a context where people are hungry, it means feed them their tea. Of course it does. Jesus physically feeds them here because they're hungry. Feed them truth. Provide for them. Protect them from false teaching. Guard them, love them, care for them, pastor them, put their hands into the Lord's hand, be a shepherd uh, to them. And uh, what are you signing up for? If you're a Christian, not the leader of a new church, if you're a Christian, what are you signing up for? A lifetime of serving. Uh, If you truly love the Lord Jesus, that is what you will naturally do, and you'll do it till the end of your life. It is striking that Jesus immediately follows Peter's commissioning with talking about his death in verses 18 to 19. That's Peter's death. And we tend to immediately go, well, there's cost in commissioning. But what's the, the gap between Peter's conversion and his death? The rest of his life. The rest of his life is for serving. That's why I prayed for Rachel and Jake, that their marriage is for the service of God. Now, that doesn't mean to say that in in life, God wants us to enjoy 
stuff like that and marriage and relationships. And he wants us to enjoy that. But the more we enjoy it, well, the more we serve him, the more we enjoy it. The more we glorify him, the more we enjoy life. It's a lifetime. And there is suffering. Peter had boldly claimed that he would lay down his life for the Lord Jesus. He made that claim long before he was ready to do it. But he would, of course, lay down his life for the Lord Jesus, which is what Jesus is referring to in verses 18 and 19. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Our commission into Jesus' mission, follow me into my mission. Who is going to follow Jesus into his mission in Collington to be part of this new church? Now, let me just underscore something in case I get this wrong. Uh, not everyone. That's important to say. And it's interesting that the verses that follow at the end of John's gospel, uh, the, the picture I think at the end is Peter walking down the beach behind the Lord Jesus. And Peter turns and looks about to John the right and says, well, what about him? Where's he going? Is he going to Collington? And Jesus effectively says to Peter, follow me, Peter, forget about him. It's not your concern. It's not your concern. You follow me. You follow me. You follow me. If you're hearing that from the Lord Jesus, follow me there, don't scrub it out. Don't feel you've got to come to a decision by Thursday at 9.30 and sign a list. It's not going to happen that way. Maybe what you've heard this morning is something more akin to what these guys are doing. Not the musicians, the batlucks. Or maybe your commission is to, for the first time this week at your work, just leak out in the conversation what you did on Sunday. Maybe that's the commission. Maybe for somebody, it's a, a call to be converted. The benefit of preaching this twice is, uh, you, you know, having wrestled with this all week and with Ian sorting out my mistakes and preaching it twice. You see the rhythm, the logic of this conversion? Repentance, known and felt, forgiveness known and felt, then devotion, then serving, then for your life, with suffering, all of it following. It's challenging, moving, inspiring, comforting, reassuring, all at the same time. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this uh, wonderful passage in the Bible. And we commit all these plans that we have put together into your hands and pray that Jesus is in them. Help us not to pretend that he's in them if he's not. But help us not to pretend that he's not in them when he really is. Help us to listen. Is it me? Is it me the Lord is asking to go and to do this. Don't worry about anyone else. What are they going to do? Is it me? 
Lord, we pray that this new church will be of the Lord Jesus and it will flourish and men and women and boys and girls will be converted to Christ. Lord, we recognize the challenges. We recognize the challenges that Mark and Camilla and Jason and Rebecca are facing. We recognize, Lord, the challenges that we all face tomorrow when we meet our neighbors on the street, when we go to school, when we go to uni, when we go to work, and, and, and people say, what did you do at the weekend? And our heads go down because we're just, we're just not going to admit that we, uh, we were in church thinking about the rest of our lives. Maybe that's the, the commission. And maybe for someone here, Lord, who's never really felt repentance, that you're moving them to, to really be converted. If that's the case, Lord, it's a wonderful thing. Glorious, glorious fruit. Help us to sing, Lord, with, with joy and sorrow and the right emotions as we sing of the Lord Jesus. And all this we pray in his name. Amen.